0: I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. Oh and I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh shit.
1: Sputter it, sputter I will. And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 66 for September 2017. I'm Duncan, and 1966 was the year when Ingmar Bergman delivered what may be considered the ultimate gift to film critics, Persona. It is the Ulysses of cinema, uh, a film pushing boundaries, provoking
0: dense discussion, and open to endless interpretation. Yeah, great stuff. Uh, John Frankenheimer's exceptional 1966 sci-fi thriller Seconds, Ask the question, what would happen if you could change your humdrum life and become a successful, hip, swinging artist who just happens to inhabit the perfectly formed body of (laughs) rock-freaking-Hudson? Well, it doesn't work out as well as you'd expect. Beautifully shot by James Wong Howe, all awkward close-ups and shadows. Seconds builds up to an enormously satisfying gut punch of an ending. Right. Loved it. Uh, Black and white, too, actually. Uh, Beautiful film. And so, Simon, what have you been watching? Well, a couple of things, but uh, I finally caught up with Wonder Woman. And I really enjoyed a decent, well, let's say 70% of it. Okay. And I figure most of you folks out there have already caught up with Wonder Woman, so I can talk spoilers. I know you haven't done I haven't, um, but I'm going to ruin it for you. That's fine. You feel, feel free to spoil any superhero yeah. film for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and really, there's no other way to address the 30% I didn't care for without going into spoiler territory. So if you haven't seen Wonder Woman, skip forward a couple of minutes now. All right, still here? Okay, here goes. Look, I, I really like Gal Gadot. She was athletic, graceful, funny in her first Shadow of Water scenes in London, particularly. Uh, and probably my favorite parts of the film were those scenes in, in, in London where she's, like, trying on dresses and, and complaining, how, how do you fight in these things? Um, mm-hmm. She's really likable. And she had great chemistry with a very well cast Chris Pine. The early scenes on her island home are decent. I, I particularly loved Robin Wright here. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, she's so tough. Like I say, the London stuff is mostly great fun. I only enjoyed watching as Gal Gadot became a woman alone in no man's land during the First World War sequence. I thought that was a really powerful scene, you know. Right. And this is easily the best of the DC superhero films I've seen. But that's a low bar, eh? You yeah, know? that is pretty low bar. And Wonder Woman undoes a lot of its hard-earned goodwill in its last half hour. A half hour that takes it to a butt-numbing two hours and 20 minutes, by the way, which seems excessive. It is. But a lot of these DC films are long. Yeah. That last half hour sees Wonder Woman confront a literal god, and yet another of DC's, a light-filled, beat-down set in a grey, ashy wasteland. Mm. It seems to be their look,
1: yeah.
0: uh, their sort of um, corporate look, I guess, you know? <laughs> you won't be terribly surprised by the villainous reveal, either, because it comes from an actor who, when you first see him in the film, assume will turn out to be a villain. Right. Uh, it's, the f- it's the Sean Bean casting, is it? Yeah, it really is. <laughs> you see that You see this person, and they have a relatively small role in the film, and you go... Well, that's because, (laughs) and you'll be right. Uh, The fight itself is both overblown and dull, and it throws the established world out of whack in a number of ways. Firstly, it establishes that Wonder Woman is a god, an actual god, and not the godlike aliens of the Marvel films either, where they just seem godlike in their abilities. So therefore of immense but yet not kind of well-established power, Mm -hmm. probably indestructible, and therefore, as many superhero characters are, immune from any risks, stakes, and real jeopardy. What she can and can't do seems vague, so when she wins, it feels uh, arbitrary. She defeats a villain simply because the plot demands it be so. The villain, by the way, is a god as well, uh, the god of war. So surely removing him from the world means war is over, right? Mm. And that's, that's why she sets out to defeat him. Uh, so how do we explain the Second World War? <laughs> uh, even if killing the god of war means only a reduction in warlike impulses, that seems to have worked out really, really badly, right? And I'm kind of confused about what happens to Wonder Woman in the years after this film. She kind of slips into myth, and yet that seems implausible. Uh, surely, in the hundred years since she has been, since the First World War and uh, the events of the next, you know, DC film, she's done something. Mm. She's been visible. Why does she not interfere in events in the Second World War or any of the other wars of the twentieth century that she could easily have stopped? Apparently, and then I'm confused by the fact that she's ageless. Yeah, uh, none of the women on her island appear to age at all, and yet she grows from child to woman and then stops. And yet many of the other Amazonians are older women as well. So how does that happen? Yeah, What's going on with the rules here? <laughs> so like I say, you know, 70% are, are a really wonderful Wonder Woman film. But jeepers, the 30% that doesn't work really doesn't work for me. And it's all at the tail end of the film too, by the way. That's a shame, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And I'm also, I was thinking about it afterwards and I realised that, so she's a god and she defeats the god of war and she was born of Zeus. So in the DC universe, Zeus is the one true god. whoa. That's kind of weird, eh? It is. Yeah, yeah. So I I wonder how that's going to work across all the other films when we um when we come to realise that there's no god but Zeus. <laughs> <laughs> the deity implications of of Marvel as well, but also particularly with this. M- Marvel's not so bad in the fact that I, I think Thor and and you know all, all of those Loki and all that are only godlike. In the fact that they have great powers they're not yeah. they're never really referred to as the gods of us yeah you know or, or hu- human gods but in in dc it's really quite different yeah yeah
1: that's oh, fascinating i am kind of i have been keen to check this one out i've just been waiting for it basically to turn up on yeah. on sky or somewhere I'll, sure, be like, sure. oh, I'll kick back and watch it then but i haven't had any great desire to yeah, you know, rush out and see it so
0: i don't mind you spoiling what uh, i'm trying to say is i don't mind you spoiling oh look and i suspect i haven't spoiled a lot for you really yeah. um you know, you're an astute viewer. <laughs> <laughs> you, you'll figure most of this out while you're watching it, that it's going to yeah. happen this way. Um, I'm slightly disappointed it did, but it, it also seems slightly inevitable. Yeah, right. And um, so what about itself? What's, what have you been watching?
1: Well, I watched quite a few films this month, but the one I'd like to discuss is the recently released It. Oh, great. The novel is my favourite Stephen King book, and as a result, I've always had a soft spot for the 1991 miniseries. Right, right. And because of this, I sense I might not actually be the most objective person to review this no. film, <laughs> but there's something not quite right about it. Um, look, it has some great scenes. Uh, there's, there's a scene in a garage, which is just a really surprising kind of montage almost of uh, yep. of jump scares, which is great. And it's, it's a really striking moment, Pennywise, kind of advancing out of the past into the present, very much mm-hmm. into these kids' yep. lives. But the film doesn't seem as invested in building menace, i found. It's kind of obsessed with jump scares. Yep. So it becomes a little bit one-dimensional in how it delivers the, you know, the, the scares. Look, the killing of Georgie has always been a strong opening in every incarnation. It provides irresistible motivation for our hero, displays the power and seduction of Pennywise, lays bare the violence that is possible, and shows that in this story, even the most innocent can be destroyed. But the film falls into repetition with both the children's individual experiences with it and particularly their final battle with the creature. The film goes for wholesale bludgeoning violence at this point to repel evil rather than the charming mix of hokey superstition and shining self-belief that lines the pages of the novel and especially the TV miniseries. The film casts exceedingly well with its lead, Bill. Uh, He's very good. He's really, really likeable. Um, And the actor was the child actor in St. Vincent the film with Bill Murray and um, oh, yeah, yeah. and Melissa McCarthy. He's really good. And also the uh, single female representative, Beverly, she's cast very well as well. But the other kids get lost in the mix a little bit. Uh, Richie, Stan, and Eddie, they're almost interchangeable. Uh, Richie only separated by the actor's determination to shed his nice guy image from Stranger Things role um, by just dropping a litany of F-bombs and mum jokes until it's almost his exclusive form of communication. Um, and mike the uh the black kid feels even more token than he is in the miniseries. series and um but i still feel these concerns have to be counterbalanced with what the film gets right and that is great lead performances and a really creepily effective pennywise uh he's excellent the actor who plays him is um uh yeah yeah and he's uh he's really good yeah uh and look, an R-rated horror film based on one of my favorite horror novels devouring the box office is welcome news to me. And even better is
0: that the film has a natural built-in sequel to it. Um, but yeah, Oh, I agree with almost everything you say here. I thought I I've, I thought Mike was pretty unfortunate actually because um, it's, it's hard to say this about child actors, but he was he was the worst of that group. Yeah, and also he was brought in late, so he didn't get to develop much of a character in in, in that film. And also some of what he does in the book – I haven't yeah. seen the miniseries, by the way. Yeah. I have read the book, and I loved it. Mm. Some mm-hmm. of what he does in the book is stripped away and given to another character yeah. to deal with. That's and right. that's really unfortunate, I felt, as well. Yeah. He, like you say, he's, there's a tokenistic value to him. And it's made worse by the fact that he's stripped of some of his importance. Yeah, that's um, right. But there's, I, I liked a fair bit of this film as well. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you in that it's more favors jump scares yeah. over a mounting dread. Yeah. And even though I saw people in my screening freaking the hell out, yeah, I wasn't freaked out,
1: no, uh, or no.
0: scared. And I, still, I get scared like everyone else in yeah. movies. Even though I'm a horror fan, um. So I was a little disappointed by that. Sarsgaard was wonderful though. As you yeah, say. he
1: was really good. And um,
0: I, I just think that I, I've watched the
1: miniseries a number of times. And you know, when I was a, a, a teenager, you know, you used to watch yeah. it, and it was kind of a big deal on being on TV. And um, so it's hard for me to divorce myself from that as well, right? right. Of course, particularly in visual representation uh, of the story and the beginning. I mean, is kind of shot for shot, you know, really in right. a lot of ways. I know they did the shot for shot trailer, but the beginning with Georgie is pretty much, you know, except for a bit of gore. It's pretty much shot for shot similar. Yeah. Um. And so yeah, I I just found really that point from. Without going to spoilers for our listeners, that point basically where they go into the house, um, all kind of separated. From that point on, I I found it just
0: starting to repeat itself a little yep. bit. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I'll be interested to see how the sequel goes, though,
0: and how they cast it. Yeah. Oh, like you too. I'm excited by the fact that this is an R-rated horror movie that's done exceptional business. So for me, uh, that's great. Love yeah. It. Yeah.
1: Would you say you're a typical example of your sex?
0: I am above average. And so, Simon, what's the news? Right, well, good news for, I presume, all our spoiler listeners. Mutt Williams is out of here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The ridiculously monikered monkey-swinging munter who helped ruin the last Indiana Jones film, thank you very much, by the way, with <laughs> able assistance from practically everyone involved, is no more. Screen Screenwriter D- David Koepp confirming that Mutt has gone to join Short Round An Indiana Jones psychic purgatory. Again, this is great news for anyone who watched the last Indiana Jones film. What do we expect? Shia seems unlikely to want to return to a performance he bagged and was bagged for. And I don't think there's a person in the world who's begging for their further adventures of Mark Williams. But let's also not forget that the very thought of another Indiana Jones film is a terrible, terrible idea. (laughs) And that the last film would have been horrible with or without the beef. Also, just because Matt has grabbed a vine and joined a cartload of chimpanzees <laughs> swinging from vine to vine off into the sunset doesn't mean we won't be introduced to a new psychic played by, I don't know, Zac Efron maybe or Freddie Highmore and named Scooby Smith or something. <laughs> so you know they can do it, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I oh
1: yeah, and I don't think Mutt Williams is your biggest problem in uh no. crystal scale.
0: Oh no, absolutely not. Yeah, I mean he's yeah. he's seized upon a bit, but um he's yeah. he's hardly the only issue with that film. <laughs> By the way, cartload of chimpanzees is the collective name for chimpanzees. Is, I is that right? That yeah, it's crazy, eh? That is crazy. That's what you call a group of chimpanzees. A cartload. A cartload. Amazing. That is. I should remember that for a quiz sometime. Yeah, it's good it's good knowledge to have. Yeah. Mutt Williams, eh?
1: That's great. Yeah, yeah. Oh, bring back short round before we bring back Matt Williams. Oh, totally, and just um, an adult short round. Oh, totally, <laughs> like, just dress the same. Totally, like. because
0: it's sobering to know he is the same age as us.
1: Yeah, short round. And in breaking news, set to a pulsing synth track, Jamie Lee Curtis will star in the latest Halloween film. Oh, why am I not reporting on this? <laughs> I know, shocking. As Simon has mentioned before, original director John Carpenter is on board as a creative consultant and promising to try to make it the scariest entry in the series. Now, original star Jamie Lee Curtis has posted an image of her standing on a veranda with Michael Myers and his knife hiding in the doorway behind her. And she's attached the amusing caption, same porch, same clothes, same issues. Uh, (laughs) and universal pictures has confidently stated it will be the last entry in the series oh um, yeah sure but you know as uh, president bush junior once said nearly said fool me once shame on you fool me eight times in a remake you know shame on me so
0: <laughs> <laughs> also this means that we uh, i assume the the chrono- chronology of the series is halloween 1 halloween 2 this halloween right does that make sense yeah like well, c- can i assume that every halloween between halloween 2 and this one is no longer canon? Yeah, I guess you could.
1: Uh I think the only possible um no, you're right, because I was gonna say uh Halloween H twenty, but actually no because she chops his head off at H twenty, right? right? Spoilers. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and she dies in resurrection. Yeah. At the she dies in resurrection. Which yeah. is um Yeah, which is bananas. Yeah.
0: So. And I, I would assume that they disregard the events of four and five as well and yeah, um, and, and three. Oh, well, that's. Oh man, don't worry bring about three. bring back that. Imagine, oh, I love three. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Just yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis, um, just
1: hard drinking doctor. Just yeah, you know, that'd <laughs> be great. It's coming back. Oh as...
0: <laughs> uh, look, I I, I'm a, I I adore Jamie Lee Curtis basically, and she is the heart and soul of that um, yeah. series in a lot of ways. So, you know, despite everything, I'll be down for this.
1: Yeah, I ex- I'm the same. I'm just like, well, you know, you. Everything that could be done to the series has been done to sure. it,
0: so, you know, what
1: what what harm can come, you know what I mean?
0: Exactly. How yeah. bad can it be? <laughs> yeah. And in more happy casting news, after all the talk of whitewashing in films like Ghost in the Shell, The Great Wall, Doctor Strange, and too many others to mention, some good news for once. Ed Skryan, I hope I pronounced that correctly, mm-hmm. who's probably best known as the villain from Deadpool, dropped out of the Hellboy re- reboot when he realised that he would be playing a character who was of Asian descent. In the original comics, mm. making this surely the first time I've been aware of an actor honorably falling on a sword mm. to allow an actor of the right racial background to step into the role. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. It um, is. And it looks like that's exactly what will happen as well. Daniel Day Kim is now in talks to take over the part, which is great news for him because he's recently left the TV show Hawaii Five O along mm. with uh, Grace Park, also an Asian-American actor, reportedly because they were getting paid substantially less than their co-stars. Right. So some bad news, and then some good news, and one classy move by Ed Scrine, who is now the second only recipient of the Simon Lambert Free Pass from the Tree of Woe. (laughs) That's right, Ed. Should you find yourself in danger of being thrust up on the Tree of Woe to pay for some cinematic sin, you, like Wentworth Miller before you, will get the chance to walk free in recognition of your noble deed. Congrats, Ed. I'm sure you're listening, so congratulations. Yeah, that's uh that's great. Oh that's good reward for uh, for that. I, I saw that movie and I thought that was pretty
1: classy, uh, right?
0: Yeah, classy and pretty pretty gutsy, you know. I, so I'm not uh, aware of this happening before anyone else doing this. I mean no. yeah. So no great. Uh look, Nicolas Cage has given a classic
1: Cajun interview while promoting his new film Mom and Dad. Have you heard of this? No, no. Uh after saying no one wanted to make this film. Um, which has the Purge-like premise of a 24-hour period where parents are allowed to express violence towards their children. Uh, <laughs> he then compared director Brian Taylor, who also directed him in Ghostwriter 2, I think. Uh, he compared him favorably to David Lynch and the Coen brothers, put him on that level, uh, and finally said that his relationship with his director was also comparable to Kurosawa and Mifune because Taylor didn't feel the need to direct Cage. He just let him go. Uh, which sounds incredibly irresponsible filmmaking if you ask me. Yeah,
0: it does a bit. It <laughs> does a bit. Uh, so Taylor's the guy who did the crank films as well. So Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um which I love immensely. Yeah. Uh, Ghost yeah. Rider 2's not quite on that level, however, no. I gotta say. Yeah. Oh wow, crazy. Yeah, I just thought that was great. Just wheeling really, uh, out Kurosawa, the Coen Brothers,
1: um I think he even mentioned like his uncle Franz Coppola. like he's but he's on that level. <sighs>
0: wow. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> this, this should will be a great film then, not huh? clearly. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it sounds nuts. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm up for that then. Yeah. Yeah. And inevitably, in horror news, after eight years of development, Cold Skin, a delightfully, deliciously Lovecraftian-looking concoction, has a trailer. First announced as a project by 30 Days of Night director David Slade, it has now been filmed by Xavier Gans, the French director of Frontiers, with the S in that crazy little brackets thing. I don't know if you've ever seen the title of that film. No. I don't know. It's like Alien 3, you know, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to pronounce it. The adaptation of the Spanish novel's first trailer isn't French and lacks subtitles, so I have no idea what's going on, but it looks wonderfully icky. Set at the end of the First World War and at the edge of the Antarctic Circle, there are decaying lighthouses, creepy fish-like men, and one of my favourite pieces of early 20th century tech in one of those air-pumped copper diving suit-like things, you know? Mm-hmm. I love that. so cool. Yeah. Uh, so it looks really good. That's um, cold skin. So um, Right. I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, uh, an English language writer so I can finally know what's going on.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. I'll have to look out for yeah, that Yeah, yeah, it looks cool.
0: And finally for me, Louis C.K.
1: has welcomed a whole new level of controversy with his latest film, and what appears to be a less than subtle feature-length dig at Woody Allen. Uh, Louis' film I Love You, Daddy, about a father having to accept his 17-year-old daughter, played by Chloe Grace Moretz, is going out with a 68-year-old man, played by Joel Malkovich is also an artistic hero of louis ck's character like woody allen's manhattan it's also set in new york filmed in black and white 35 mil and deals with an extreme romance with troubling implications louis ck shot the whole film in secret edited it himself did no advanced screenings or even any press and simply premiered it at the toronto international film festival um it is said in typical louis ck style to be brutally funny and ck himself comes in for the biggest roasting but despite the red rag to Woody Allen's bull, it is C.K. himself who has come under scrutiny for his own alleged sexual misadventures in the past. Uh, he has been accused of being inappropriate on set towards female cast and crew. And anyone who has seen Louis C.K. stand up know that he is frighteningly and hilariously frank and open about his life. But he seems to have become a little bit vague and noncommittal when answering or not answering questions related to his past. Uh, but it just seems interesting that it's all happening at the same time that he makes this film.
0: Yeah, yeah. I haven't known what to take out of all of this. I have been yeah. reading about it, but yeah. He, yeah. He, he won't, he, he just calls it rumour-mongering and, and just won't comment on his own. Yeah. Um,
1: And, and that in and of itself is, is worrying, but also that he's made this film. Yeah. And he's really, I mean, clearly having a go at Woody Allen and also at kind of critics and fans for letting... Giving basically giving Woody Allen a free pass, yeah, to some
0: extent yeah, yeah. Because of I've I've only read one review of the film and it was reasonably um favourable. So yeah. it sounds like an interesting flick, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and also
1: yeah, and I mean also Louis C.K. has done a film with Woody Allen as well. So he's he was in Blue Jasmine. So right, what a very really meta thing to be happening at the moment.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: <laughs> and uh, hey, just kind of final news. It only just happened um last night, but uh, Harry Dean Stanton died. Yeah, yeah. So that's um. Yeah. pretty grim but you know 91 and he just he he just does that wonderful bridging between ages of cinema doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's one of those ones where you knew this was you were going to wake up to this news eventually because I mean yeah. it's a hell of a knock but it, what a wonderful actor, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sad but also time to just appreciate, you know. Oh yeah, fantastic. What he's us.
1: He's so good and he's got got this ability to play so many different styles of character. Mm all in a very similar way, if you know what I mean. Mm. So he can go from kind of creepy into uh, hard, into vulnerable. And, you know, like the fact he did Repo Man and then Pretty in Pink, basically, in a year of each other. He seemed to have been uh, ever-present in in cinema since I was a kid, since I was cognizant. So, yeah, it's interesting to see him finally go.
0: Yeah, I um, spent some time you say, just reading an interview with him that he gave a couple of years ago. He seems warm and friendly enough, but just... Almost one sentence replies to every question. <laughs> he just goes away. Nothing. It must have happened in the eight, late eighties. This interview, and I just don't yeah. think he could be positive. <laughs> yeah, not, not 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 mean, but just i uh, didn't have much to offer.
1: Yeah, yeah. and uh, I I'll, I'll always um, just remember that final scene of Lynch's The Straight Story when oh Richard Finesworth finally makes it to him, and uh, that unspoken kind yeah. of love there, and. Uh, that's just wonderful. Yeah, that's such that's a, a wonderful It's moment. Yeah, yeah, and that's such a great moment. Oh, and, nice. You know,
0: yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, that's a good one to go out with, yeah. Yep. Contemplate this on the Tree of Woe. Welcome to uh, one of our favourite parts, one of your favourite parts of the show, the Tree of Woe. So this is where each month we take a cinematic offender or something that's really uh, got under our skin in the month of film, and we punish them by putting them up on the Tree of Woe to suffer under the onslaughts of hot sun and hungry buzzards. So, Duncan... Uh, what's got under your skin? What's annoyed you this month? Well, sometimes
1: it's the things we love that hurt us the most. And I want to cycle back to the start of the podcast when I offered a review of It. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was one thing that kept colouring my perception of the film, and it was this. We've reached peak 80s nostalgia. It's taken less than a year since Stranger Things covered me like a warm blanket with its 80s sentimentality cycling around in between Dungeons & Dragons sessions and Star Wars viewings, listening to mixtapes and Walkmans while looking for adventures with friends. I'm sure I wasn't the only one out there, or even in this room at the moment, who was saying, that was me. Um, but since then, 80s nostalgia has become pastiche, in shorthand for, hey, these people are just like you, so we won't bother actually making their journey relatable in any other way than setting it back in the 80s. Right. Uh, I'm beginning to realise how my parents must have felt when there was all that kind of 50s and 60s nostalgia when I was a kid. Um, Ironically, it is It transplanted from King's 50s into the 80s that has made this apparent in It. There is Street Fighter arcade marathons, Gremlins posters on the wall, The Cure on the soundtrack, and Airwolf t-shirts on the characters. But this isn't Richard Linklater level of period immersion. This is just like a, a wafting hand sprinkling 80s dust on everything. There is something both strangely calculated and yet kind of careless about the atification of these stories. I'm just getting this tree of woe in before next March when a film I'm greatly anticipating adapted from a book I loved is released uh, because the world will be consumed with Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One as it swallows its own tail and 80s goes into a cannibalistic orgy of self-reference. As Spielberg brings to the screen a love letter to himself uh, so, onto the tree of woe with you, 80s nostalgia. I still love you. And if you're wondering why someone who loves you is nailing you up for the vultures to feed on, then I'll self-reference my opening line. Sometimes the things we love hurt us the most. Oh, man. um,
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's completely true. Do you remember that, that 70s show? Yeah.
1: Right?
0: And they actually did a, a spin-off series called That 80s Show? Yeah. They should do it now. Because right now, yeah. this, that would hit perfectly. Because we're just, you're right, we're surrounded by... You yep. know, Rubik's Cubes and, you know, yeah. new kids on the block And yeah. just all that 80s stuff has just become cool again, inexplicably um, yeah. And you're right, the first time I saw it, uh, watching Stranger Things And a kid put the Demogorgon down on the D&D board And I was pretty excited, because I had that Demogorgon model <laughs> I, I could almost smell the packaging when I opened it and yeah. The lead and everything, uh, seeing that So it does, it does trigger those kind of, you know, yeah. moments And at the beginning of It, when they walk into the schoolyard and what's playing? The cults love removal machine, yeah. and I was like, yes, yeah. But it is too much as well, yeah. And it is like you say, easy signifiers, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not really angry with
1: the, you know, hey, some of the some of them, some of it doesn't. It's just that it's on, in vogue, and it's just um, sometimes it's, it seems out of place. And some, you know, Stranger Things is built around that whole thing, and it's got references, and I don't I don't mind that so much with Stranger. I loved it with Stranger Things, yeah. And like I say, Ready Player One, the book's fantastic, it's full of this stuff, but then there's these things in between where you're like, do we really need it to be, you know, okay, it can we set in the 80s, but does it have to be so aggressively set in the 80s? Like, does it have to have all these pop culture references in there?
0: I don't know. Yeah, I don't mind them sitting in the 80s, because I know that then makes um, the sequel. Sure. You know, yeah, makes sense of the sequel setting. But yeah, yeah. yeah
1: I can understand yeah. what you're saying. I mean, it's one thing to set it in the 80s, but it's another thing to go, hey, here's the 80s.
0: Yeah, don't take Love Removal Machine away from me, dude. <laughs> I won't, man. I knew you'd love that, that, that <laughs> rocket in there. <laughs> all right. So yet another Star Wars film finds itself the subject of fanboy speculation and fevered internet discussion as Colin Trevorrow departs Star Wars Episode Nine to be replaced by J.J. Abrams. And there's a lot to unpack here. Firstly, the subject of Abrams, who, judging by the reactions online, is regarded as a good, safe pair of hands to shepherd the film through, as if safe is what we're all clamoring for. <laughs> I uh, know it's not what I want. Uh, then there is the rough history of Star Wars productions to date. I was talking with a friend to show, James McCall, and pointed out that maybe Josh Trank could jump into the director's chair, and James replied that he'd almost forgotten about Trank, who was the first director to be fired or back out of a Star Wars movie, joining Trevorrow and Phil Lord and Chris Miller. And that's not even taking into account the lengthy production difficulties of The Force Awakens and Rogue One. But the big issue for me here is because uh, the next podcast we're going to do, we, we spend a lot of time talking about Ida Lupino. Mm. who, a big star of the 40s, director, coming out of the back of that as well. And in a month spent reading about and watching Ida Lupino movies and coming to the conclusion that she doesn't have the appreciation she deserves, I think, is where are the women now? Where are the women directors now? There are men who are getting massive blockbuster franchise films on the back of directing a single low-budget indie movie, Mm. which is insane. Edwards went from Monsters to freaking Godzilla to Rogue One. Trank was signed to a Star Wars film on the back of Chronicle and only lost the Star Wars job because of the calamitous flop of the Fantastic Four he made in between. Mm. So if it hadn't been for that, he would have gone from it. One low-budget indie film, boom, straight into you know a massive Star Wars film. Uh, Lord and Miller had a more solid career behind them, but largely in comedy. And Trevor is perhaps the strangest of them all, directing the super indie cult film No Safety Guaranteed and then landing the reboot of the Jurassic Park franchise mm. on the back of a film that wasn't even effects driven. And yet, what does a woman have to do to direct a blockbuster nowadays? The one exception is Patty Jenkins, who had to wait 14 years between Monster and Wonder Woman. And just this week was signed on to Wonder Woman too. because, what do you know, she did a hell of a job making a huge commercial success. It was hands down DC's best superhero film as well. So what the hell, Hollywood? There's no excuse for this, right? Men are getting blockbusters handed to them at a reckless rate, and yet women can't be trusted with a franchise film. And when they do, they knock it out of the park. So it just makes no sense. It's like you go studios and you're archaic attitudes onto the tree until you can change your ways.
1: Well, yeah, as is a catchphrase on here, I completely agree with you. Um, yeah. <laughs> what's happening that's that's driving these guys out of this film? This has to be the most um, narrow-focused, cookie cutter, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way necessarily. You must know what you're in for. How, how are you coming to creative differences to the point that you're getting fired slash walking away? I don't yeah. understand how this I, I can kind of get it with Han Solo maybe Rogue 1 shifting but the, episode 8 9 these things should be like in place you should just have to point the camera and shoot like how how is this turning to create yeah. differences so I don't understand by the
0: time 9 rolls around they will have made five films yeah and only one of those seems to have gone smoothly and that's yeah. uh Ryan Johnson's episode 8 yeah uh 9 obviously the lost director yeah. uh 7 um I mean Abrams' We, we forget that Abrams actually had troubles on that film and they had to push back. Rogue One's clearly difficult. Mm. Uh, the Han Solo story, obviously, yeah. it's, it's all over the papers. So, um, all over the papers, listen to me. All over the internet. <laughs> How old am I? <laughs> um, so, yeah, it it is, like you say, it's, it's hard to imagine what's going on there. Yeah. But, but part of it for me is is that they seem to be hiring directors who aren't ready to be doing these films, with the exception of, obviously, Abrams and, and Johnson. They, they They seem to have tried to get people who just aren't ready for their responsibility. Whereas Ryan Johnson seems <laughs> to be the best choice anyway. Mm. And and i it's interesting to see that his production seems to have gone smoothly, but mm. he seems to be the best choice in that he's had some experience, he's got a distinctive voice. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it would be a problem for a Star Wars universe as well, yeah. unlike for Lord and Chris Miller's yeah. voice, which obviously was, I guess.
1: Yeah.
0: Um but yeah, yeah, why aren't why why aren't women in this picture? Uh, I mean that's amazing. guys are getting these films just handed to them. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I was quite shocked to learn that Patty Jenkins hadn't made a film since Monster. Yeah,
1: that's a long time. And that was
0: a big, that was a successful film too. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a big film and she's basically been doing television since.
1: Mm.
0: And then when she does get a chance, Wonder Woman, look, look at what happens. That film makes so much money. Yeah. Yeah. 70% of it's really good apparently. And 70%, <laughs> 70% of it's really good. And the 30% that isn't good is... That's it's not, scr- not, not going to be Star Wars franchise ruining... That 30% that. No, no, <laughs> no, absolutely not. And that 30% is script problems as well. Yeah. So I, you can't put that down to her, I don't think. No. Yeah. Spoiler alert. All right. So that was uh, episode 66. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So look, our next podcast is going to be on the subject of Ida Lupino. Yeah. Well, this is episode 66, part one. Part one, yeah. So yeah. And part two will be Ida Lupino, which we're really looking forward to, to getting deep diving on. Yeah. When we started talking about doing these deep dives, one of the first names that we brought up was, I, I think you suggested it was Ida yeah. Lupino. She was a big star in the 40s, mm. but then amazingly became a, 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 a really successful director, too, uh, mm. working in television later on in life, but also makes really interesting films. Yeah. And and I don't think she gets the appreciation she deserves, so I think people are going to, you know, there's a lot to learn about her.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's it's got a really interesting life, a really interesting career, and um, yeah, and the the more people we can get to maybe even just check out one of her films, I think you really appreciate her. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, so we're going to deep dive into that. And so uh, the song we're going out to
0: is, Simon? It's A Love Removal Machine <laughs> by The Cult. Look, I love this song. Yeah. I, I know this is another piece of 80s objectification <laughs> happening here and all the rest of it. Oh, my God, what a great song. Oh, look, man, um, there is, it, it, there's, there's nothing 80s about Cult. It's timeless. Timeless, thank it's you. It's timeless. Thank you. It's,
1: it's like going to see, you know, Michelangelo or something. You don't see it oh, in this t- totally timeless.
0: I, I'm pretty certain <laughs> they've uh, got a copy of Electric or maybe Sonic Temple on like one of those Voyager things they send out into space to show other civilizations what we're up to, you know? <laughs> yeah, don't get me started Sonic Temple and how much I love that album. Really yeah, amazing. yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
1: yeah, so, um, yeah, I was just saying, it's shocking that we've gone um six years and haven't played a cult song on here. Yeah,
0: it's, yeah. It's six years, guys. We've been doing this six years. Yeah,
1: that's scary in itself. Yeah, so um, thanks everyone for listening and tune in next for of yep. uh, Lupino. And um, cheers. Thanks.